You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see Suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it If I please The game of life is hard to play Hello and welcome to episode 52 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. After a look at the film In Country, in episode 50 and last inter- episode's interview with Doug Murray, I'm going back to the regular format and picking up the comic book series with issue number 45, which will cover this issue's historical con- and will cover this issue's historical context letters and ads as well. But at the end of this episode, I will have something new for all of you guys, and that's my very first segment of listener feedback. Plus, I'll have a few words to say about the format of this show as we head into the second half of the 100 episodes that will make up this podcast series. As far as the music that opened the show, it should be sound familiar to most people. It is called Suicide is Painless, and it was the theme to both the film and television show MASH. The version that I played with the lyrics opens the 1970 movie, and the tune was written by Johnny Mandel with lyrics by Michael Altman, who was the son of MASH's director Robert Altman, and was 14 years old at the time when he wrote the lyrics. It was performed by session artists John Baller, Tom Baller, Ron Hicklin, and Ian Freeburn Smith, who are sometimes credited as The Mash. The story behind Michael Altman writing the lyrics is that supposedly Robert Altman wanted lyrics that were the dumbest lyrics possible, and he tried to write it himself, but he couldn't get the lyrics to come out the way he wanted, so he gave the assignment to Michael. The song didn't chart in the United States, but in late May, early June of 1980, it hit number one in the United Kingdom. The Manic Street Preachers covered the song in 1992, and their version of the song hit number seven in the UK. Of course, what most American audiences are familiar with is the instrumental version of the song that was used as a theme to the long-running, very popular television show, M.A.S.H. Now, you might be wondering why I have the theme to MASH as our music today, since that film and television show are both about the Korean War and not the Vietnam War. Well, quite a number of people will tell you that Altman and the producers of the television show, mainly Alan Alda, used the Korean War as a stand-in for Nam. But there's actually more of a literal reason, because this story that we have is about the Korean War or features a, the Korean War in a good portion of a flashback. 
called Looking Out for Number One. It was written by Doug Murray. Wayne Van Zant did the breakdowns with Tony DiZaniga doing finishes. Phil Felix was the letterer slash colorist. Don Daly was the editor. Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. The issue was covered dated June 1990 and came out on April 24, 1990, according to Mike's Amazing World. We opened in October 1969 at the 23rd's base camp somewhere near Tainan. Martini and some of the guys are walking down the road and discussing why the barracks are so far from the latrine when they find a composition notebook lying in the middle of the road. Martini picks it up and begins reading while the others walk on. He sits down on a stoop, and Daniels walks over to him and asks him what he's doing. The two of them then proceed to read the entry that begins on July 4th, 1950. Our serviceman, who is African-American, writes about how he is on a troop train heading west and thinking about how his father would be proud as he served in the Navy in the early 1940s and was a dishwasher who was killed at Pearl Harbor. His writing in this diary is interrupted by a white guy named Tad who starts giving him a hard time, but a friend just tells Tad to leave our writer and his friend alone because it's time to eat. The writer, who we will discover is named Jim, turns to his friend Morgan and tells him that he doesn't know how long he can take it. Morgan tells him to let it go, because if he does, he'll just get himself in trouble. It's a white man's army, always will be, he says, and if you're going to survive, you got to ignore them and take care of yourself. Just take care of number one. Everything else will take care of itself. We fast forward to July 15, 1950, and we are in San Francisco, where Jim is throwing dice with Tad and a few other guys. He wins the pot, and he walks away. Three days later, he is confronted by the three guys he'd beaten at craps, and they demand their money back. When he refuses, he gets beaten badly and spends a couple of nights in the infirmary before being called before his captain and asked to sign an Article 15. Jim is baffled. They stole his money. But the captain says it's the word of four guys, and of course it's four white guys, versus his. This is the moment where he realizes that Morgan was right. It's the white man's justice and the white man's army, and he has to learn to look out for himself right away. August 2nd, 1950. Even though he's an NCO, Jim is told to ride the back of a truck because according to the truck's driver, that's where he, quote, belongs. Somehow Jim isn't surprised. September 15th, 1960. After spending more than a month training for a special mission, Jim and his men land on Inchon Beach. The beach is heavily defended and the unit comes under heavy fire. As they are taking cover, Jim sees Tad running at full charge. Morgan tells him not to worry about it, but then Tad gets hit and goes down. Once again, Morgan tells him not to worry about it and worry only about himself, but a conflicted Jim runs after Tad, and despite getting shot in the back and forth between him and some North Korean soldiers, Jim saves Tad's life. At the hospital, Jim wakes up with Morgan at his bedside. Morgan tells him that the brigade commander is on his way over to decorate the war hero, and just then, the general walks in walks right past Jim and Morgan to Tad, giving Tad a bronze star and a purple heart. After all, Tad was there, Jim reflects in his diary. He was more photogenic, and he was white. Tad gets a promotion to sergeant, and Jim stays a corporal. They wind up on the same boat headed back to the United States and spend their time throwing dice. Once again, Jim wins, and once again, Tad and his friends confront Jim. But this time, however, Jim pulls a gun on Tad, and it works. Tad walks away scared, and Jim gets the idea that the money he won, which he was going to use, to, which he was going to send home to his mother, might be useful to get him the promotion he thinks he deserves. He bribes his way up to an E5. We fast forward to July 1963 in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, which is where Jim has been for five years as a drill sergeant. As he makes his troops run, Jim gets word that the president is going to have the army promoting qualified NCOs who are black, and it's only a matter of time before Jim gets his. April 10th, 1967, Vietnam. Jim is there, as is Morgan, who Jim has been able to get into his unit through a few well-placed bribes. 
They are supposed to walk into a Vietnamese village that is supposedly pacified, but Jim obviously knows better. Unfortunately, his lieutenant tells him to do his job and leave the planning to the professionals, and he comments, Of course, we could end the war just by just as fast by getting rid of our officers and letting the professionals run the war. The idiots think they can run a war according to the rules. Didn't Korea teach them anything? The village, of course, is not pacified. Morgan is shot and killed. The choppers are on their way. Jim goes nuts and starts firing at anything and, anything and everything in the village and throwing grenades. The choppers arrive. Morgan is dead, but Rob Little, who was also shot, will be fine. But the lieutenant tells him that Jim and his men have to sweep the area for the remaining VC because that's what he promised the colonel he would do. Jim says, let's talk about what's in it for us. We cut back to Martini and Daniels, who are still reading the diary, and someone comes up to them and says... I think that's my book you've been reading. Martini says that he found it and he was going through it to figure out who it belonged to. The voice says, I assure you that it is mine, and since we're all together, let me introduce myself. I'm Jim Tarver, your first sergeant. Just call me Top. Everyone always does, sooner or later. Well, the last page in that last panel, and we don't see Top's face until that last panel, is a bit of a dramatic twist to end on. But... There are a few. There are enough clues throughout Jim's story for longtime readers to figure out. Well, that this is Top, and it's a great way to reintroduce a character who we really haven't seen in quite a while. Top's various bribery and manipulation have been discovered a couple of years ago in a great issue, and the result was that he was demoted. But he wasn't kicked out of the army per se, so it makes sense that he'd not be so content to sit around where he'd been demoted to. However, there needed to be a plausible reason for Top ending up back in the Numb and back with the 23rd, and Murray, giving by giving us his backstory, has it make sense. Of course he found the right guy, and of course he bribed his way back up the ladder, because life in the army is pretty much the only life he's known and, and since he shipped out as a kid, so he knows how to manipulate the system. And what Murray does, by using the diary as the main story with Martini and Daniels as a framing device, is give us a good illustration of what I guess we call a lifer. Jim goes from a pretty innocent, naive guy to someone who is hardened and looking out for himself. What's interesting, though, is that he also protects those important to him. Morgan is the person who gave him all of the advice about surviving in the army and life in the army, and Top repays him by getting him into his unit when they're in Vietnam. Yes, Morgan does get killed, but we can clearly blame the lieutenant for that and not Top. In fact, Rob Little said that Top looked out for him, and that was one of the reasons he worked for Top as long as he did. The racial tensions are something that have been a huge part of this book for quite a while, and Murray shows us that they didn't start in Vietnam, which is something that someone with a basic knowledge of American history would know. But it's important to illustrate that the Jim Crow era bled over into the armed forces. The units were not necessarily segregated, but we see that in quite a number of cases the attitudes of the time carried over. You've got Jim's father being a dishwasher and not getting much recognition for his bravery. Jim is told to ride the back of the APC, even though he's an NCO. As we get closer to Nam, we see things get a little more progressive, even if Jim has had to resort to bribery at times to get where he is, and even if he still has to deal with the orders from a white lieutenant. In issue 41, we saw the departure of Iceman from Vietnam, and... That really did close into their era for the book, one which had been going on for a while. When that batch of guys had come on, they had been transitioned into the book pretty easily, and Ed Marks and some of the others, they were leaving. This made for a nice flow. After Ice's departure, this has seemed a little bit more choppy, and I think that's... After talking to Doug Murray last episode, we can see that it might have had more to do with what was going on behind the scenes in terms of his relationship with his editor than anything else. So, things were starting to stall. My hope is that with the reintroduction of Top, it'll get a little bit more interesting. Art-wise, 
This is a great one. I love seeing Tony DiZaniga on just about anything, and his finishes off Wayne Van Zandt's breakdowns are top-notch. There's some great detail, and nothing in this book feels rushed, which is how it felt on occasion when Van Zandt was being inked with someone other than Jeff Isherwood. DiZaniga does not have the same touch that Michael Golden did when it came to drawing a guy like Top as an almost cartoonish sort of bulk guy, but when he shows up at the end, he is no less intimidating than he was in the book's early days. The issue is a step in the right direction, and while I know that Murray doesn't have very many issues left at this point, I'm hoping that the end of his run will be solid. So I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, I'll have historical context, letters, and ads. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick, and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick... Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him! He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. So I actually looked up the, comp- the history of the Composition Notebook, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to research, at least in terms of what I call research, which is you know looking up things up on the internet. I've been able to find out that the earliest forms of the classic Composition Book date back to the late 1800s, and when your parents or grandparents in an R story, uh, Martini, talk about having used them in school, they're probably, being, they're probably right. They are, of course, still used in schools, and last year when I was buying s- supplies at Target, I wound up finding a very rare in the wild college ruled composition notebook. In fact, it's what I've started using for my podcast notes. As far as our actual historical contact with context, which comes mostly from Wikipedia, there are a couple of decades to get through here. Jim, refer- Jim makes reference to his father fighting and dying in Pearl Harbor, which we all know was the sneak attack by the Japanese on the Hawaiian Naval Base on December 9, 7, 1941. This event and the declaration of war by Germany that followed would officially bring the United States into World War II, which at that point was really being fought by the British after the fall of France in 1940 and then eventually by the Soviets as well. July 4th, 1950 is not a notable date in the Korean War, although July 1st is, and that is the day that the first set of American ground troops is deployed in Korea. July 4th significance in the Cold War is that that is the day that Radio Free Europe starts broadcasting. Radio Free Europe is still around as Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, and its mission, according to its website, is... RFE slash RL journalists report the news in 21 countries where a free press is banned by the government or not fully established. We provide what many people cannot get locally, uncensored news, responsible discussion, and open debate. 
On July 18, 1950, according to Wikipedia, Major General William F. Dean of the United States Army was separated from his unit after when North Korean troops overran the city of Taejeon. Dean would spend the next 36 days eluding North Korean patrols and trying to make his way back to friendly territory until he was betrayed to the enemy on August 25th by a South Korean civilian. As a major general, Dean would be the North Korean's most important prisoner of war and would finally be released on September 4th, 1953. Then we have August 3rd, 1950, which is not specifically mentioned in the comic, but it's important to the Vietnam War, as 35 men from the United States Army visited Saigon as part of an American military assistance advisory group, sent to assist the French government in the training of the new Army of the Republic of Vietnam. The group began a near 25-year American involvement in South Vietnam. September 15, 1950 is important to the Korean War because it is the invasion of Incheon, and that is a rousing success for the United States. It is the first invasion of Incheon Harbor, and only 21 U.S. soldiers would die, as opposed to significantly more North Korean soldiers. It was planned by General Douglas MacArthur, and would be the first step toward taking South Korea from the North, who had invaded the country prior to the intervention of the United States. Incheon would be liberated the next day, and from there, forces would advance toward the South Korean capital of Seoul. July 1963 is the next time we see Top, and it's brief because it will be put in 1967 about a page later, but I did want to note a couple of events, though. July 5th, 1963 is the Sino-Soviet split. This is the end of friendly relationship between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, as the two countries had seen tensions over their differences in communist ideology. It was a significant event of the Cold War. It was obviously created various political and diplomatic problems for both countries, as well as the United States, and this would eventually lead to Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in the late 1960s. April 10th, 1967 puts us pretty much at the beginning of our series, The Nam, and this is around the time the war itself was getting hot and when the protest movement in the United States was getting hot as well. There is a massive anti-war demonstration on April 15th, and later in the month, General Westmoreland would condemn the anti-war movement, saying that it was giving the North Vietnamese hope, although at the same time, he was privately telling President Johnson that he believed the war would go on indefinitely. Our present as it is, is October 1969, and that's where I'll end the historical context section. According to the history place in Wikipedia, here's what we have. A poll taken in October of 1969 says that 71% of Americans approve of President Nixon's policy regarding the war. From October 9th to October 12th, demonstrations take place in Chicago in conjunction with the Chicago 8 trial. These demonstrations are countered by the actions of the National Guard who are called in to handle the protesters. On October 15th, there is a massive protest and teaching called the Moratorium to End the War in Vietnam. Here is what both Wikipedia and the History Place have to say on this. The Moratorium developed from Jerome Grossman's April 20th, 1969 call for a strike for a general strike if the war had not concluded by October. David Hawk and Sam Brown, who had previously worked on the unsuccessful 1968 presidential campaign of Eugene McCarthy, changed the concept to a less radical moratorium and began to organize the event as the Vietnam Moratorium Committee with David Mixner, Marge Sklenkar, and John Gage and others. As with previously large anti-war demonstrations, including the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam's April 15, 1967 march in the United Nations and their 1967 march in the Pentagon, the event was a clear success, with millions participating throughout the world. 
Boston was the site of the largest turnout. About 100,000 attended a speech by anti-war Senator George McGovern. Future President Bill Clinton, then a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, organized and participated in the demonstration in England. This later became an issue in his presidential campaign. Demonstration organizers had received praises from North Vietnam's Prime Minister Pham Van Dong, who stated in a letter to them, May your fall offensive succeed splendidly, marking the first time Hanoi publicly acknowledged the American anti-war movement. Dong's comments infuriated American conservatives, including Vice President Spiro Agnew, who lambasted the protesters as communist dupes comprised of an effete core of impudent snobs who characterize themselves as intellectuals. Finally, two important non-war events. First, on October 29th, the first message is sent over ARPANET, which is the military computer network that is the ancestor of the internet. And on October 16th, the New York Mets complete the miracle season of 1969 by winning the World Series by defeating the Baltimore Orioles. Beat the Orioles Sunday 2-1. Leading right now 5-3 with two down. Simone on first. The 2-1 pitch. There's a fly ball hit out to left. Waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champions. Gary Kuzman being mobbed. Look at this scene. Incoming this month. David C. Nielsen writes that he was skeptical, and he says that he would, when he first started, uh, he thought the comic book genre couldn't afford the serious attention to do the Vietnam War the right way. He would occasionally pick it up. He was, he found himself pleasantly surprised until issue 40. He said, in that issue, you consistently portrayed the crew of the little PBR's army. However, minimal research would have shown that PBR's were all Navy. I had hoped that this would shed some overdue light on a largely unsung, unrealized, and unappreciated role of the Navy by ignoring the Browns' Navy sacrifices you have lessened their role in the war. Of course, there was a certain appalling inevitability about a story that revolved around a boombox. Let's see, what could possibly be the skin color of the owner of this box? And what if we make him a little lazy and irresponsible too? Really, folks, your approach to racial stereotyping could use a little fine-tuning. Anyway, I've emptied my bile. I hope number 40 was just a lapse, but remember, unlike Japan, comic books here have not turned the corner to serious literature, and it's things like issue 40 that keep comics from ever doing so. It's your professional credibility, not mine. David C. Nielsen of Frederick, Maryland. Doug writes, first off, I'm glad that you had that your occasional peaks at the NAM have led you to some enjoyment, and I'm sorry that number 40 bothered you so much. You're quite right when you say that minimal research would have shown that all the PBRs were run by the Navy. However, deeper research would have shown that quite a number of PBRs running near Da Nang were run by the Army's 458th Transport Bin. The Navy didn't have the manpower to patrol the entire river, so the Army did part of the job. I write the NAM as an Army book, and I, as I had a true story about a lazy man in a boombox, yet straight from the man himself, I decided to make the boat an army boat. Clear? In any case, thanks for the comment. Even bad reviews show somebody is reading. There's a letter from Chris Betchel of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, who talks about how he was annoyed that issue number 41 had superheroes. He says, I used to admire your seriousness, but you lost some of my respect by having superheroes fighting the VC. Uh, he's to tell you the truth, Ed Marks is my real hero, and guys like him do a story about POWs. My friend's uncle was a POW who escaped the cost of the foot. Thanks for your good work. Uh, 
Dear Chris, Doug Greitz, and Ronald Hockmeyer and Matthew Clough, both of whom also commented on the superheroes, I just want to reiterate what I already said about issue 41. It was an experiment of sorts, one designed to get the some younger superhero-oriented fans to read the NOM. We, we will not do it regularly. In fact, we'll probably not do it again. Okay, okay. Dear Nommers, I love... This is Frank Nava of El Paso, Texas. Dear Nommers, I love your comic. I think you should show some other jobs in the NOM. How about some stories about helicopter pilots after Vietnam? After all, Vietnam was the first helicopter war. How about it? Frank, your wishes are command. A three-part story about a chopper pilot will appear in the near future. Penciled by Herb Trimpey. How's that for service? And honestly, that is coming up in, I think, about two or three issues. NOM notes this time around. Got a couple of old-timers for you guys this time. Right back from the community to the Korean War, times change, wars don't. Article 15, a non-judicial financial punishment, the commanding officer's way of taking some of your money without a court-martial. Bar, the Browning Automatic Rifle, forerunner of the M60, heavy protection for a rifle company. Brown Bar, second lieutenant, call that because his gold bar becomes brown and camouflage. Charlie, Chuck VC, the enemy of Vietnam, E5, enlisted rank 5, equivalent to a sergeant. NCO, non-commissioned officer, the guys who really ran the army, ordnance, shells usually of the artillery kind, REMF, those in the rear echelon who aren't too popular with the boys are up front, rocker, when you pass the rank of sergeant, each stripe that goes under the sergeant's chevron is a rocker. SOP, standard operating procedure, they're generally the way things won't work. And there's the next issue box showing a character who is, who is saying, sure you do, you want me to be your best friend and your brother and mama too. You want me to look to like you because you think I can keep you alive just because you want a piece of me, Pogi. And at the bottom, there's a ballot for the Comic Buyer's Guide Awards. Ads this month, uh, there's a, a Milton Bradley Games ad for Nintendo for Abadox, which looks like you're fighting monsters inside something. It looks really icky and goopy never played this game i think this is around the time where i i had nintendo i wasn't really buying there's a bionic commando ad from capcom i really wasn't i was buying new nintendo games but not at the same rate i was buying new nintendo games about a year or two before then Ooh, entertainment this month and the 90s have begun because we have an all new spider-man Number one, written in pencil and ink by Todd McFarlane on beautiful deluxe paper. In issue number one, Spidey takes on the lizard. Issue number one has four different covers and is... So hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. The black cover, the silver cover, the limited edition black cover, the limited edition silver cover, and there's a Spidey t-shirt. Then we have Punisher No Escape, which is deluxe format. There's the Batman Archives... There is World's Finest, an all-new deluxe series by Dave Gibbons and Steve Rude. Batman and Superman take on the Joker and Lex Luthor. This is hot. There's a Simpsons. There's a bunch of Simpsons merchandise. Entertainment This Month and American Entertainment were basically the same company, and my impression always was that Entertainment This Month was their new comic subscription service or recent comic subscription service, and, and American Comics was their main comic shop. Uh, and they would they would advertise under two banners, sometimes in the same comic book, and I think that's why they did it. Um, I need to do a little bit more research into that, though, because it's an interesting topic. Because it it very these ads very much typify, typify the early 1990s comics, uh, especially since American Entertainment is no longer in existence, and um, it would be kind of out of out of business by the late 90s. 
going down, there's Wrath of the Black Manta, which I believe is a Nintendo game, and there's a contest to win a $5,000 shopping spree. Call now and talk to the Black Manta for your chance to win, um, and you can win a... That's your grand prize, and then there's a... Um, first prize is a 25-inch big-screen stereo television and Nintendo Entertainment System. Second prize is a Mongoose 18-speed Hilltopper BMX bicycle and trail and tour helmet. And third prize is a Black Manta t-shirt. And the illustration is this kid sitting in a shopping cart that's filled with toys and stuff, holding the Wrath of the Black Manta cartridge and what looks like a few bills. And the Black Man, a guy in a Black ninja costume is pushing him. The kid's got this like, yeah, one expression on his face. It's really, the typeface, the typography is very early 90s, but the it's just, it's, and so is the kid. It's very, very much of its time. Uh, this is be, this is before every boy in a comic book ad or everything got extreme and, and, and self-aware late 90s. This, this is still that sort of like, you know, hey, I'm the cool kid, like smiling cool kid night early 90s stuff. There's the Double Dragon 2 ad. Trade West Super Off-Road for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Hit the dirt. It's a four-player game, apparently, how they did that. Um, We are getting into the late part of the Nintendo. I believe the Super Nintendo will be out soon. There is an ad for the Dick Tracy movie, which shows uh, Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy, drawn like a comic book character, speaking into a watch communicator saying i'm on my way and that's all it is dick tracy was going to be the big big comic book movie of of 1990 and it did it did very well but i think it did ultimately disappoint because it was not as big as batman had been but not many other things are uh bullpen bulletins this month stands talking about how he gets disturbing letters because people send him letters saying that the spidey newspaper strip isn't running in their town and He's saying, go and ask your local newspaper for Spider-Man. And then you've got, this year we're introducing, oh, this is interesting. This year we're introducing six new titles featuring characters whom we've dubbed the Heroes of the 90s. Already your awestruck eyes have beheld the first issues of Robocop, Ghost Rider, and Namor the Submariner. This month you can thrill the return of the ever-popular Guardians of the Galaxy. And over the next two months you can look forward to the final two Heroes of the 90s titles, New Warriors and Spider-Man. To help usher in these new titles, we've decided to give away some nifty prizes. There's still plenty of time to enter for details See any issue of Marvel Age. Don't delay, enter today, and you can be a hero for the 90s. And, uh... They're talking about how there will be talking about some stuff by Mobius and Eric Shanower. Um and Dwayne McDuffie is going to enter leaving Marvel and it's his editorial Marvel position at his editorial position at Marvel into the wacky world of freelance writing. Um and then Bob Adansky will be taking his uh, Tom Brevert is taking his um place and he says it's time once again to update which annuals be coming your way this month. First up will be the ALF annual. And then you have, uh, this is when Days of Future Present is coming out and they're advertising that. Then we have a couple more ads. We have a Ghostbusters 2, Arch on Stealth, and 3 Stooges Nintendo games. I can't imagine those are particularly good. There's a Spidey-themed subscription ad. There's a Bottom of the Ninth and Bayou Billy, those LCD handheld games from konami win the big game and defeat the gangster king with your bare thumbs 
There's also a bunch that you have Top Gun, Skater Die, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and C, which I believe is probably the and Gradius. C is the Contra game. And then on the back, there's a TSR ad for Forgotten Realms, which these would run like crazy throughout the 80s and 90s. A final segment for this episode, one that I'll have for the next few episodes at least, and that's your emails. I've gotten a few, and I'm going to space them out all over the next few episodes, and what I might do is start trying to address emails as they come in, because even though I always record several episodes of the show at a time, because I can tack them on at the end here, but you don't really care about that and you want to hear the emails, so I'll get to those. I have two words. I have two for you, and this first one is from Luke Giaconetti. He writes, Tom, hey man, I just wanted to drop you a quick line about in-country and your coverage of the NAM. I've been getting caught up over the last few weeks and have really been enjoying what I've been hearing. I only started getting into war comics in the last decade or so, primarily through having my eyes open to the breadth of titles which existed that I previously had no idea about. Like a lot of comic fans my age, being born in 1980, I never gave a lot of thought to war comics beyond G.I. Joe. It was not until DC started putting out their Showcase Presents collections for a lot of their war properties, including ones which were new to me, such as Enemy Ace and Unknown Soldier, that I really warmed up to it. Now I find myself combing discount bins for hidden gems of the genre. I found a few issues of the NAM over the last year or so, but not that many, so I may have to start hitting up some more online sources or start hunting at cons for the book. You do a really great job on the show conveying not only the story on the page, but the context of the story as well, which I really enjoy. I also like the shows to the point, making for good listening when I'm on my afternoon walk or doing or during drive time commuting. Furthermore, the fact that a war comic, any war comic, is getting such a well-put-together show pleases the war comics fanboy in me. Keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening. Uh, that up by email, by the way, is from over a year ago. It's from July 2nd, 2014. Luke's the host of Earth Destruct. Directive. He's a heck of a nice guy. In fact, I've gotten a few more emails from him that I'll read in episodes to come. I have to say that I'm really glad he's liking the show because I know what a big War Comics fan he is. And while War Comics were never in my wheelhouse prior to the NOM, I've started to become more curious. In fact, I might pick up a couple of the showcases that he mentions if I can find them on the cheap. I also never gave thought to War Comics beyond G.I. Joe when I was younger, as I told him through emails. This has been a great experience both as a comics fan and a student of history. My next email is from Gene Hendricks, who is the host of the Hammer Strikes podcast and the Hammer podcast, among other things that, that you can find at the Two True Freaks Network. He writes, Tom, I just made my way through all the episodes of In Country, and I want to thank you for their coverage. Vietnam is one of my blind spots, primarily due to my father. You see, his older brother, uncle, my uncle Gene, left college and joined the Air Force when he found out that his parents were mortgaging their house to pay his tuition. He was eventually stationed in Vietnam, and approximately two weeks before his tour would have been over, he was shot down while on a non-combat mission. Due to this, anything to do with that war has not been discussed or viewed in our house. I've seen Platoon in China Beach, but that was on my own. Due to this, I never had a driving need to learn about the war. Your show is helping to correct that, so thank you. Gene. This email, by the way, was from October 2014, and again, I'm th I'm glad you're enjoying it as well. The story you told about your uncle is similar to ones that I've heard, read, and seen over the years. As I said all the way back in the first issue episode of the show, my own father was in Vietnam, but doesn't really talk about it very much. And I have friends whose dads also served in some, and in some cases dealt with PTSD. In fact, a girl I dated in high school had a father who was a vet and still had problems dealing with loud noises, for instance. And it wasn't something that was talked about. 
Honestly, the war still hits a nerve, even though it's been half a century since the height of the United States' involvement. It's quite a personal war in that regard. And by the way, Gene, I've seen the first season of China Beach. I'm trying to track down the remaining seasons without having to pay an exorbitant amount of money for the DVDs. It's a great show, and it'll get its own episode later on at, down the line. Thanks, Luke and Gene, for writing in. And if you're interested in giving me some feedback, please email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go ahead and leave a comment on the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Now, like I said, I will start putting some more letters into the episodes. I'm also going to start playing around with the historical context section. We will hit in the point in the next few issues where the real-time storytelling goes away, and there might not be some need for an extensive look at historical context of the issue in every episode. So what I'll start doing is taking a look at other media that deals with the war, but doesn't necessarily warrant a whole special episode on its own. This means songs, short stories, maybe other comics, novels, movies, and television episodes. So look forward to more of that in the future. And as always, thanks for listening, and take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. <laughs>